Hi, J- <laughs> Hi JC. Hi. Uh, Maria Fitzpat. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> go okay. Ahead. I'll back away just no, a no, little just bit. Go ahead. I'll deal with it. Okay, thank you, JC, for your uh, informative presentation this morning. And I will say that I'll get to a question, but I do have some comments, and I'm glad you said, if you can, uh, (laughs) because I may comment a little too much. Um, Okay, so from uh, my own personal experience, uh, everything that you said this morning, I could identify times when that happened. my uh, experience was over 35 years ago. And um, I've spoken over the last two years many, many times about domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And every time that I do, I experience PTSD. Mm-hmm. So I have days or weeks when I am hypervigilant, where I am uh, reacting. Uh, pain in my shoulder, pain in my stomach, lots of little things uh, that are affected by it. But um, I want to change things. And um, I've said uh, at many of the presentations I've done that, in fact, uh, we have to change the attitude in society. Mm -hmm. So I spoke at a, a particular event, the Breakfast with the Guys, which is the fundraiser for the Alberta Women's Shelters. And um, when I spoke, there was um, a number of men in the audience that cried. And there were a number of men in the audience who would not look at me. And if you look at a microcosm of society, and we know the, the kind of percentages of uh, people that are involved or uh, have participated or witnessed or whatever, uh, if you looked around the room, I'm sure that those who couldn't look at me were probably people that were in one of those percentages. Mm-hmm. But I talk about um, we're either part of the problem or we're part of the solution. And I talked about when uh, you are in a situation, whether it's a social situation or a work situation, about calling people on their behavior. And I do call people on their behavior. and. It, caused me no end of grief when I was working in corrections, but I felt that I had to. So uh, one of the examples I used is, uh, many of you know I play golf. And when I play with uh, certain men, uh, if they make a bad putt, they call that person Alice. And I said, stop it. It's a bad putt. Call it a bad putt. Stop using uh, a woman's name to imply that uh, a woman couldn't make the putt, so therefore you're using a woman's name. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of little things make a difference. So I ask people, have you ever called your boss when he's made a a joke that was inappropriate or um, said something like that? Because if you don't call it, you're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to shame people, but I ask people, please, step up and actually call people when they say those things. I have to think about what I say because all of those ingrained um, uh, thoughts uh, that you've grown up with uh, come out many times. And when I talk to my kids, I hear my mother speaking many times. 
and they remind me of that. So I try to listen uh, in my head before I say something. But for me, I want things to change. That's one of the things that will change. You work in an environment where women are coming in. One of the things that uh, I guess trigger me, uh, triggers me the most is when uh, somebody speaks to me in a dismissive manner or um, speaks down to me or as uh, the word that's been coined now, mansplaining, mm-hmm. when it's something I already know uh, how to do. I don't need somebody to explain it to me. So what do you suggest as um, a takeaway from this presentation that everybody in this room can do that will help to change that attitude in our society? Yeah, um, first of all, you made some great points. Uh, Thanks for sharing uh, your feelings and your experiences. Um, I think that what you suggested at the end there about... um, that particular triggering behavior or, you know, being dismissive. Um, A tool that we can all use is actually just a basic communication tool, um, which is understanding that often when we think about trauma and when we think about things that are going to trigger us um, or make us feel defensive or go into those fight, flight, or freeze responses, is actually it's not always the content about what we're talking about. It's the communication style that we're using. And a lot of uh, people, men in particular, are socialized to talk in a particular way that's, again, about power and control. And what that can look like is like not letting someone finish their, their statement or asking questions one after the other and not giving enough time in between to make someone feel like they can self-pace, you know? Um, so actually something we can all do, help other people do and ourselves, is to, um, to be conscious of our tone and how fast we're talking with someone, and that any kind of questioning with someone who might have a personal connection to this topic is going to trigger them, like, in all likelihood. Um, So it's really important that if we're going to be having these discussions, even if it's with someone that we respect or or care about, that we understand that people need enough space to feel like that they can comfortably think through an answer and talk about it. Otherwise, things, they they build up. There's too much pressure and you can feel like you're trapped, you know, like, um, it's a really effective solution. Um, And again, like with your comments about on the golf course, you know, um, people using uh, women's names, like seeing seeing this, like, pyramid of violence, you know, is what we sometimes call it, and these kinds of socializations and stereotypes and how they can lead to to violence in the future. Um, A really good way to, I mean... If we're actually thinking about, like, how do we call people out in a way that's actually getting them to self-reflect and not feel defensive, which is an emotion, right? This is an emotion-focused perspective. We want them to feel defensive, which doesn't, you know, encourage someone to um, to take things seriously and be like, oh, like, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so we have to think about ways that aren't going to, like, trigger that kind of emotional response. So... Um, I actually uh, I do presentations and workshops with young children, um, and this might sound patronizing, but I actually teach this to adults too. It's called eye messages, and um, educators use this a lot where in communicating something that we find frustrating, even if we feel like we shouldn't have to communicate like this, it's actually really useful um, as a communication communication mechanism to be like, I feel like this, when you do this, 
because of this. Um, and go through like, I feel when you do this because of this reason. And if you keep it emotion focused, someone is less likely gonna be like, I'm a good person though, or like whatever, this doesn't mean a lot, you know? And they're gonna be like, oh, like I didn't realize I was making you feel like that, like if they're a respectful person. Um, so it's a really good strategy and a way of actually opening up the conversation. Sometimes we try and talk about these big ideas um, and people just shut down. And so it's definitely a part of my job. And I've seen a lot of real, um, real progress on issues like this, especially talking with people who might be the ones who are being abusive, um, is just practicing communication strategies. And often it can be a lot less work for me or someone else who is um, being affected uh, just to have some useful tips. A uh, lot less work for everyone emotionally and will maybe lead to someone not getting triggered. So I don't know if that exactly as, as, uh, answers your question, but um, those are some of my pieces of advice. Hi. Hi. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Uh, thank you very much, Daisy, for a very well organized presentation. Uh, my question relates to uh, you must have seen in the last few years the, the change that's come about partly because of social media, I think, uh, the Me Too campaign. And can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, that's, it's actually given women uh, and probably some men as well uh, a way to, to uh, feel okay telling, telling their story. Yeah, um, I can... Oh. I can definitely speak to that a little bit. Um, I don't know if there's an exact answer, and I think that it definitely requires thinking about, you know, um, what constitutes safety, um, you know, who is safe to speak about what. Um, I certainly see a lot of things being established in institutions like universities, um, different sexual violence pro programming, uh, more normalized language around sexual violence. Um, and personally like have felt more comfortable you know like in in my everyday life I see more people talking about it um, at the same time you do get also though a resurgence of other kinds of things um, you know like uh, or also even just the yeah the illusion of safety that like things are safe unless we do bad things um, I think that there isn't enough discussion about what constitutes violence itself um, and what are the things that are triggering us or what constitutes um, you know, abusive behavior. So while I see a lot of progress in people talking about it, I sometimes don't, I see the same people talking about the same approach, um, which is like generalized mental health or like survivor power um, or, you know, kind of celebrating um, victimhood or, you know, and it's the same kinds of things. And honestly, for me and the other people in my life that have had these kinds of experiences, we don't necessarily relate to them. Um, I think that there are positive sur like, um, survival mechanisms and a good way to get into the topic. Um, but at the same time, uh, for example, survivor stories, like relying on survivors to speak up about this topic as an, as an only way to engage in this, um, it is really powerful, but it also, because of what we know about trauma and being triggered and like how people are responding, online in particular, um, with severe, like, life-threatening kinds of harassment and violence, um, it's kind of an unsustainable way to, to talk about it in many ways. So I really think it's a complicated answer, um, 
I think that also, like, privileged white women um, who have a certain socioeconomic standing are also the ones who are getting the platform, as in most social causes, right? Um, So I think that definitely we need to examine, like, where our knowledge and our stories are coming from and, um, you know, just, like, thinking about it a little more carefully. Um, But certainly, yeah, it's been... I think it's been helping a lot, and I actually did find the Me Too and the Time's Up campaigns, like, I find them pretty powerful, and that, that um, capacity to organize um, was actually really incredible, especially from women of color, so um, there are changes, you know, like people saying more appropriate things, saying things that are more considerate of, uh, you know, more, of more variety of people's experiences, so it's definitely not one answer. Um, that was a very complicated answer to your question, but I, you know, it's important to talk about. Yeah. Thanks, JC. I, I'm Mary Shillington. I'm a retired uh, clinical social worker that spent my years at Lethbridge Family Services, but also uh, did a practicum and worked at Harbor House. So I have some experience with what you're talking about. Yeah. I found I learned a lot from those clients and those people I was working with. And one of the things to be sensitive to to is my language, Mm -hmm. which at first I was using the term trigger. Mm -hmm. Now, if we think about that, what's a trigger? A trigger is attached to a gun, Mm -hmm. and guns are often part of violence. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things we could be doing is changing that language to cue. I'm cued by such and such. And so uh, that would be my challenge to you and to Maria to not use trigger, uh, because it will add to the trauma for people. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a bookstore, used bookstore, and as I was going, I happened to ask the person what the Christmas was like, and this person was a male, and said, well, I just knocked around my kids to keep them in line, and they're all adults. And I said, oh, goodness, I hope you didn't knock them around. I hope you loved them. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, well, I just was joking. And those are opportunities we have to, uh, to, to challenge that. And so the other thing I wanted to comment on, uh, when I was doing some of my training in Calgary, uh, a fellow from Australia talked about men's role in educating and bringing men on board about what their responsibility was in violence and mm-hmm. so on. And I know the programs at LFS were around that. So what would you suggest to the men that are in this audience and men that might see the, the, us on TV, what would you suggest men could, or, uh, could be doing and how can we help them do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great points and great question. Um, you know, I, I don't uh, hear a lot from frontline experiences, the, the trigger, but it is true. It has like a gun connotation and I know uh, another option too is also escalated um, You know, so it really depends who you're talking to, but that's a great point, Um, and language is super important. Um, We were actually just talking at our table about this, about um, how we have a lot of social services um, geared towards men because we don't always want to put it on the people who are experiencing abuse and assault to make all these massive societal changes, Um, but we're having a hard time getting, at least in my community in Tabor and where I work, we're having a hard time getting men accessing our services because of not identifying the behavior, feeling ashamed, embarrassed, um, lots of different things, uh, maybe not even reaching the right kinds of audiences, and also the gendered nature of some of these services, like a women's shelter. I mean, 
You know, um, there can be lots of barriers when you call something a women's shelter, even though we need a women's shelter um, specific to that to that gender. So it can be frustrating. But um, first of all, I would say that all of the strategies that I went over in my presentation, the uh, knowing how to respond if someone discloses, and also being a good bystander, these are things that everybody should know, including men. Um, but also, one of the things that I have found most powerful in my life and in my line of work is when men uh, talk about times when they've been abusive, um, because most people have. Um, you know, actually most people, not even just men, but like I think it's an experience that, you know, at least one of the behaviors everyone can relate to. And I think it's really powerful in breaking all kinds of stigma and also like relinquishing some of that power in these conversations by being like, I'm not going to defend you on these things or I'm not going to make you give all of this information about this when I know you probably have like very intimate um, and connected experiences with this. Um, like, yeah, I was in this relationship and... I find myself doing these things and, um, you know, and I'm really ashamed about it, but like, you know, trying to talk about moving past that shame or being like, do you, have you ever experienced that? You know, like just inviting people into the conversation and normalizing it um, is a very strong interpersonal strategy that we can start doing and also in terms of like campaigns, um, things like that. The problem I know that people have is that they're afraid of legal prosecution, but as we know from... <laughs> the recent um, media and just generally is that actually a lot of these don't lead to that anyways and that we're often survivors or people who experience assault aren't even looking for punitive justice anyways. A lot of the times they are and that should be honored. Um, but yeah, that is actually something that I've seen is most effective. Um, and men just sharing one-on-one -on -one to all the men in their lives um, different resources and normalizing talking about it. Um, and taking the time to identify their own behaviors and how what they're doing could be abusive. And that's okay, you know, it's just a commitment to acknowledging that and trying to figure your way through those behaviors. So honestly, that would be my suggestion. Mm -hmm. Hey, Beth. Hi, JC. <clears throat> By the way, do you people all know that JC is the one who put together our SOCPA 50-year um, presentation booklet? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Grab a copy. Thank you, Vanna. <laughs> um, so um, I want to. I'm Bev Mundell Atherstone, and I want to thank you very much, especially for talking about the freezing, because as a retired psychologist, when I was in in practice, that was one of the things that came out, out most often. Is people freeze and then don't know what to do, and they're left in that situation. So yeah. I'm so happy to see. A third, a third option there that is, is true and related to brain behavior. So thank you for doing that. Uh, it also occurs to me, the comment, that um, in, in our society, which is based on this competition instead of cooperation, we tend to have these hierarchical models in which power is part of that whole hierarchy. And um, I just wanted to mention that I think that women... Um, as you mentioned, the privileged white women um, tend to be, can be in that situation as well. And, um, and in families can be quite abusive to their daughters and actually teach the daughters uh, to be passive and um, set them up for abuse in the future. Yes. So that's one comment. And uh, another comment is I've heard that there is research that shows that 
people who are bullies, uh, women in particular who are bullies, tend to get in high positions in um, in societies, in groups <coughs> of people who are less less powerful, such as working with people with disabilities and so on. Mm-hmm. So my question there would be, what recourse, what legal recourse, or what recourse do we have in society to help to change these dynamics so that people, like the school system has actually changed quite a bit with influx of power of the parents, mm-hmm. but in other situations where you've got adults with disabilities, in situations where they're being bullied, how can we change that mm-hmm. pattern? Thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah, great insights, great question. Um, first of all, just a comment to um, you know your comments about women. Um, this is why exactly why I gave a disclaimer at the start, being like this isn't about men or women. Um, it's about a culture of abuse and a culture of particular gendered socialization and you know not to dismiss that definitely uh, women face a certain set of um, set of problems like when it comes to this um, and that shouldn't be dismissed at all but definitely internalizing um, sexist messages um, is a huge way that this kind of power is circulated um, myself I remember when I was young um, I remember body shaming people. I remember seeing every woman as my competition. You know, like these are things that are effective. So we come to believe them and we come to share them. And so, of course, that's going to happen. Um, really important to acknowledge that too. Uh, very powerful in my own transformation when it came to you know um, believing different things about myself and other people. Um, Also, definitely, to your second point, in terms of um, trying to have positions of power in society or um, exist in this kind of a world, I definitely uh, understand why uh, women do that sometimes as a survival strategy, sometimes because uh, they're taught to emulate, you know, desired masculine behaviors. Like, there's lots of reasons why we could look into that. Um, I am not a legal professional, and I certainly don't know of... um, any specific, like there are people in this room I know that know more about the law. Um, there are really great groups, though, um, you know, that deal with things like elder abuse, disability abuse. There's a great group here called Learn in Lethbridge um, who deal with things like that. I think that um, all of these conversations, like learning about the socialization, learning about the behaviors, learning to come to terms with these things that we're all experiencing in our lives, that will have that will change the culture and that will be also really important and often it has a huge impact like the grassroots up you know we do a lot of legal lobbying and stuff like that and it's extremely important but we also have to acknowledge that as we're we're changing the intimacy of our communities and how we relate and talk to each other about these topics that that's going to have a much more significant impact on on policy reform and and things like that too so yeah I certainly don't know the answer to that question but I think that it's something that we should be coordinating more about especially frontline workers and and people um, who are working with people with disabilities or people who have less societal power um, and lawyers and scholars you know I see a huge divide between those communities sometimes so yeah hi Jay-Z hi I'm Henning Mundell and my question, I'm going to give a bit of a background to the question, deals with the harassment sensitivity training. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at the research station for numerous decades. I'm retired over 10 years. But maybe about 
10 years before that, it started as a requirement. We attended workshops on sensitivity to harassment. And yes, sexual harassment, not just sexual harassment, any kind of harassment. Mm -hmm. And one of the messages in that uh, harassment sensitivity training was that it's not just at work, it's anywhere in society, if you're at the pub, if you're out in the restaurant, whatever. One time at our lunch in our cafeteria, one of our senior managers was sitting there at the same table with me and was telling us a story, a very much off-color story, and I called him on it. And he sort of wondered, why are you calling him on I said, I can see that you haven't taken that course that you insisted we all take. <laughs> and he admitted in front of the people that were there at the table, he got red in the face that he hadn't taken it. But that was, I'm talking about about 15, 20 years ago, and uh, it seems that we in the federal public service were given that kind of opportunity. Obviously, our politicians weren't. And I'm wondering whether you're aware of um, the private sector and provincial staff, whether these kinds of sensitivity training is given analogous to that actually is even earlier on we were had to sign off in terms of the aspects of conflict of interest whether it was a, we have a conflict of interest whether there's potential for conflict of interest whether there's an appearance of conflict of interest and we as public servants have to sign off just to be continuing in our job obviously the politician just just getting to that now yeah, that's, uh, you know, this is a really important thing to talk about. Um, I know lots of programming is outsourced to nonprofits uh, who are already overworked. Um, you know, even my position, uh, awareness and public education coordinator, you know, like um, this position is created to teach people about things that they should be learning about when they're a child, you know. Um, you know, for example, even sex ed or healthy relationships um, is a, a topic that is primarily put on the responsibility of shelters across the province to teach in curriculum schools because it's not part of our curriculum. Um, at the University of Lethbridge right now, um, we have a new awareness and education worker for sexual violence support, and we, uh, uh, me as like a representative from the Women's Center, I guess, actually, um, are part of a committee, uh, the Preventing Sexual Violence Action Committee. And um, there's talk, a lot of talk about how we host workshops, like consent workshops and things like that. Um, and it's always the same people attending them. It's always, like, not people in positions of power. Um, so there's a lot of talk about, like, how to s streamline that into, um, like, professors, you know, because we're seeing a, a lot of violence, like, in any position of power from people like that or... You know, even in classes where things like this are talked about, um, there then is, like, misuses of power and things like that. Um, my answer is that, like, I'm not aware of any um, organization in this area that does, like, comprehensive work in that or has, like, an effective solution. I just know of all the nonprofits who are tirelessly working to try and get these things uh, normalized into training. And also, you know, it's also important to acknowledge that... Training like that, um, unless it's comprehensive and delivered in a particular kind of way, um, is often a bit of an eye roll, you know? Like, um, 
at least that's my experience with a lot of people I work with, um, is that they're kind of like, yeah, we can say this and we can then say that we're an ally or we can say that we're trained or a safe person, and they're not doing any extra work. You know, they're not being like, okay, these are introductory ideas, I'm going to take this seriously now because what else is important, right? Um, and like practicing or learning or doing extra reading or, you know, reflecting on their own behavior, it's more just like, this is intellectually interesting. Um, so good questions. Um, you know, I would recommend uh, supporting the, the groups um, who are trying to make this happen, like at the university, um, Whitney Baylog is who you need to talk to about that, um, about streamlining and funding this kind of, kind of education for people in that institution. And, you know, also just making your organizations aware of people like me and other positions in social service industries that exist and being like, we should get this person to come in and do a workshop on anti-oppression or we, you know, like, um, or what consent can look like in the workplace. Um, because it's very much hard to get into the private um, corporate sector with these things. So really important. Thank you for your question. This will be our last question of the afternoon. John? All right. Uh, my name is Jonathan Grant. Uh, first of all, I also want to thank you, JC. I really feel like I've gotten a lot of uh, good information uh, out of your presentation today, and not just that, but the, the discussion that's happening here. Um, I guess uh, I, I know you've uh, stressed a lot to make this conversation a, a non-gendered uh, th thing to a certain extent because, because a abuse of power happens, even though statistically it may ha happen more often in, to one demographic than the other, it, it does kind of happen across a wider spectrum. Um, I guess one, one of the things that you've talked about that's really resonated with me um, is just like understanding that, you know, all people have at times, um, you know, people do abuse power at, uh, at different points in their life. And that's something that I think for each person is a bit of a learning curve is, is like as they have any power in their life and, and how they choose to exert it. Um, I, I guess just to share a bit about my personal story, um, I was uh, given a preliminary diagnosis of uh, borderline personality disorder uh, a year and a half ago, which I, I had confirmed in a neuropsych test last year. Um, and for me, what it really uh, identified uh, is, you know, something that I'd kind of suspected for a lot of my life, which is that there was really a... Um, you know, a family environment that I was growing up in where abuse and not just that, but um, really damaging, controlling behaviors were very omnipresent for a very long time. Um, and I, I know that for me, as I've kind of gone over my, my own journey uh, at times trying to set boundaries and uh, escape some of the relationships in my family, uh, one, one of the hardest things for me to deal with um, is recognizing that some of the abusers in, in my life, including at times when I have not dealt with my own emotions in a healthy way, that one of the biggest things that I don't think a lot of people recognize is a lot of abusers are either have a history of being abused or are in a social or family environment where even just a show of, of what would be considered weakness or or just like, you know, just empathy to a certain extent can can just lead to them being targeted. Um, and I know for me, one of the hardest things has been 
recognizing that some of the, some of these people actually do have their own mental health issues and they do need to feel safe admitting that they have a problem. And and I know for me that the, something else that has made it very hard is that when I've often escaped it, I found that other members of my family have gotten targeted by and so for me that's always been kind of an emotional leverage where like I kind of felt like I had to be the target so other my younger siblings weren't getting affected um I I guess like you know but yeah I I guess I kind of just asked the question and like how how do we kind of unravel that How, how do we make it acceptable for people who have that kind of background to come forward and get help because the the big thing I see shifting and, and it's great to see that the language is changing with things like the Me Too campaign, um, but you know it's very much we've gotten good at finally identifying people that are abusive and and admitting that there is a larger problem. But how, how do we make sure it doesn't just turn into hang like hanging these people out to dry who've often in cases been victims of abuse themselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. That's a really important experience to share, actually. You mentioned a lot of things, and I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, I'll just try and go through them quickly, point by point. But first of all, um, just to emphasize that like, um, this is a very gendered issue. Um, I think that violence against women is like a huge threat and an epidemic, um, and politically is extremely important to advocate for in terms of language. But um, just also acknowledging that the gender binary and gender stereotypes and racial stereotypes and all these things that um, comprise our understandings of people is a violence. Like, these things are violences, and that's why everyone is is integrated in it. And in many ways, that goes into the rest of this, too. Um, But I think that creating these safe and trusting environments... um, You know, and understanding that, like, something like BPD or some other kind of... Uh, mental health concern um, that these are very normal responses uh, to abuse and their norm and coping strategies that our bodies go through Um, and I think that working um, as a community on strategies that get rid of that shame um, you know and making sure that we talk about mental health in a way that then isn't also pathologizing and being like you then are this person now or you know is being like yeah this was normal and like you know, um, I'm sorry you've been going through this. Um, and, you know, incorporating this into our discourse instead of um, excluding those people or making them feel ashamed for something that they maybe had no control over in the first place. Um, abusers abuse because we live in abusive constructs in our society, and there are in many ways no such thing as abusers. Of course there are in our lived experiences, but really... Um, we're just like perpetuating things like rape culture. And so these things, we're socializing people to hurt each other. Um, And it's important not to demonize people um, and just acknowledge that like we're all responsible for these actions and we all have to like collectively work (laughs) towards this. So, you know, I I don't have a response for the time limit that we have, but I do think that just acknowledging, like normalizing those things and, um, and working on like emotions like shame and things like that and incorporating them into like more broad scale campaigns too will will help and and not relying on survivor stories or you know because then a lot of the persecution can come back onto them too or their families like you identified so um really good conversations to have but right. well, well th- th- thanks for entertaining that uh, that conversation topic as long as you could jc yeah. and again I, I really appreciate everything you've done today yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.
Thank you. Thank you again, JC, for today and your conversation. Thank you, everyone, for your time and your consideration. Um, hopefully, again, we'll see you next week. Safe travels home. Thank you for supporting SACPA. And I hope you can continue these conversations in your homes, in your workplaces, with your loved ones and your families. Thank you.